Welcome to another edition of the Advent Calendar version of the Coot Street Podcast, in which Jonathan Strawn and myself, Gary Wolf, are talking to authors of books that we're recommending from uh, 2022. And I'm delighted to have um, John Kessel join us uh, again for the second time this year, John. Thanks for coming back. Well, I'm, I'm glad to still be available to come back. <laughs> that's, that's probably a good attitude also. Um, well, the, the, the book that's going to end up on a lot of recommended lists is The Best of John Kessel, uh, which is 580-some pages of... Well, I'll let you describe it, because how would you describe... T- tell well, us why it's The Best of John Kessel. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, um, you know, it is... Uh, it's a huge... It's about 200,000 words, and it has... Mm-hmm. Uh, despite having so many words, it's only 20 stories, because a number of the stories are novellas, some uh-huh. very long stories, and it it's really the best of John Kessel covering stories that have been published. The earliest story was published in 1981, and the most recent in 2021. So that's 40 years of fiction. And uh, you know, I think I think what it uh, means to me anyway is uh, it show, sort of shows all the sorts of things I've done. It, in a way, putting it together made me see uh, how many different sorts of stories I've written, you know, from, I mean, there's science fiction, there's slipstream, there's right. space opera, there's satirical fiction, there's historical fantasy, there's a lot of literary pastiche, stories about gender issues, uh, stories with a comic tone. Uh, and uh, and so I think it gives a good sense of all the different things that, that I've been interested in over that 40-year period. It does. It, it certainly, it reminded me, for example, that you're one of the one of the science fiction writers I know who was probably most influenced by screwball comedy. Um, actually, you and Connie really? Willis are the only ones I can think of who write screwball comedy. Well, uh, you know, Connie and I have, uh, what, we've compared notes on this uh, uh, a lot, mostly in the early years of our, our careers. But um, uh, that's right. I mean, I, I'm still very much a fan of that that fiction and or that those films and that fiction. Although there's not a, a – it's harder to do screwball comedy – in in fiction than it is on on the screen it seems right. to me like the classic sort uh, but uh, you know I'm still very much uh, uh, interested in that um, uh, there's, there's another thing about the the title the best of John Kessel and this always um, is something I feel like I have to add a footnote I mean the Subterranean Press has done a lot of very good best of collections of, of major writers and uh, a book I just uh, am looking at now. It won't be out until the spring. It's called The Essential Peter Beagle from Tachyon. And all these words, essential and best of, I think ought to have a footnote. Best of, well, the best of, except for the novels, because the novels are also the best of. So, for example, with Peter Beagle, you can't really say it's essential unless uh, The Last Unicorn is in it. But the advantage you have in, in The Best of John Kessel is that there are two what we might call previews of major novels in it. Right, right. Uh, you know, I... When I wrote um, uh, um, Corrupting Dr. Nice and also later when I wrote uh, The Moon and the Other, also Pride of Prometheus, actually all of them have yeah. pre- prequels in the sense that I did uh, stories that were what I ca- called proof of concept stories yeah. where I was, I was dealing with the same materials. And uh, uh, then it only uh, only later did I – and, and, and in – in at least in uh, two of those cases, I fully intended to write the novels when I w- wrote those stories. Uh-huh. Um, the Pride of Prometheus was a, a little different in that I, when I wrote the the novelette, I thought that was it. 
But then at 10 years later, eight years later, I realized that, no, what I had written was the middle of the story and it, it had a beginning and an end that I hadn't really got into. So mm-hmm. that was that was interesting to, to write a novel. It was not one of those deals where you just add a bunch of words to the story. You yeah. have to sort of reconceive what, what it is you're writing. And what we should mention for people who don't know that that is, I, 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 don't, I don't like the word mashup, but it involves characters from Jane Austen's uh, novel, ca- characters from Pride and Prejudice meeting characters from Frankenstein in a, in a right. way that is, that, that is worked out novelistically, by, by which I mean, credibly, it's not, uh, it's not a Pride and Prejudice and Zombies kind of thing. It's a serious novel uh, that really kind of um, captures, I think, the flavor of Shelley's writing probably more than the flavor of Austin's writing. Uh, right. I think that that's, that's accurate. Um, you know, I, I really what wanted it to be a serious uh, story, not a, not a, a just a, a send up or a, um, a lightweight kind of parody. So actually a number of people who've read the book uh, or haven't read the book have picked it up and said, well, or, or not pick it up because, well, I don't want to read some kind of, you know, some book making fun of, of yeah. Jane Austen or, or hashing up Mary Shelley, which is certainly not what I did. And then I've had, I've, it's been gratifying to have people who somehow had that misimpression then get get back to me and say that, oh no, this was a much more serious book than I thought. Mm-hmm. One other thing in terms of uh, novel, later novels that strikes me as interesting going back and looking at your stories for men, which is, if I'm right, that won the Tip Tree Award that year. And it did. It was kind of a, it, it was kind of an, an unsettling, uh, radical treatment of gender issues. Uh, years before gender issues became quite as fraught as they are these days, is that uh, story? Do you still hear about that story? Because at the time, it was uh, unusual. It was unusual for a male writer writing about male characters to get a tip trio. Um It was unusual, and and uh, and I was interested in exploring gender issues from the side of masculinity and yeah. the the pluses and minuses and distortions and and uh what's really what it is that that makes someone male and and yeah. the cultural issues that come that surround that um in fact when the story came out i had a number of people who were not sure whether where my own sensibilities lay in regard to the, to the novella. And I, I, I guess I I take that as something of a compliment in the sense that I was able to uh, not really lay my cards as much on the table and create a character who may seem to some people to be heroic when I don't think him to be heroic at all. (laughs) Well, you've written some pretty toxic male characters over the years anyway. Well, there, there are a lot more examples. Well, there are plenty of examples of toxic male characters in our culture and other cultures. So I guess it's not hard to come up with them. What's funny to me is how many characters who I would consider toxic are not considered to be toxic yeah, in the larger sometimes. Well, let's go on to one of the questions that we say we're going to ask. What are you reading these days? Gosh, I'm reading. I'm reading in a very unstructured way uh, since I retired from full time teaching. I read. Mm-hmm. What comes to hand and and a, a lot of different things. So, um, you know, this year I I read s- certainly some fiction, but also some nonfiction. One of the uh, uh, books I I read was um, uh, William Gibson's uh, The Peripheral, which I had not read when it came out, uh, but yeah. in connection with this uh, TV series that was just out, 
I thought I would read the novel. And uh, uh, also, uh, uh, um, I just read uh, Giovanni's Tree by Nick DiCario. Uh, it's a, mm-hmm. a collection of his, uh, what he calls his new Italian folk tales. Uh, it, it, it isn't out yet, but uh, uh, wow. he sent me the, the proofs of it. And it's it's really quite interesting. Uh, I, I found it very interesting in, in the fact that my, my mom's side of the family is Sicilian. And uh-huh. uh, the stories all take place in this little island off the coast of Sicily, and it's full of uh, you know magic and and uh, uh, really they're they're funny stories, but they're also dark stories. And uh, well, you know well, these are his it, stories; these are not collected yes, trades. Are, it's not like that no, Calvino collection. No, uh, although he he openly says that he was influenced by Calvino, but he's written his own stories. Uh, some of them are set in the past, some in the present, all in this mythical little town. Uh, that uh, is on this island off the Sicilian coast. And uh, a lot of them are, are, have um, portrayals of relationships between men and women that are not, they, there's love and then there's betrayal in these stories. And it's, uh, it's very interesting to me uh, what he was able to do there. Some of them are absurdist. There's one about a man who makes friends with the rats that live in his apartment. And, uh, but then uh, a large female rat comes in and takes over uh, running the office where he works <laughs> and, and uh, he uh, develops a relationship with her. And so it's very, it's very strange stuff. Uh, I, I, it's not like quite anything else you're going to see. It sounds like something worth, worth watching for, and it'll be out in 2023, I gather. That's right. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't have in front of me the name of the press. Uh, uh, that press it's uh, are there, yeah. are there seasonal books that you come back to or, uh, I'm not going to say is there a favorite Christmas story, but some people have had favorite Christmas stories. Other people have said you know, things so I, like, "Go ahead." Well, uh, you know, uh, um, of, of short stories, my I think my my favorite Christmas story in the genre, and there's a there's sort of tradition of writing science fiction Christmas stories, uh, is uh, is and maybe it, I'm predictable in coming up with this. It's uh, by my pal James Patrick Kelly, uh, his story, "The Best Christmas Ever." which is a, a legitimate Christmas story with a happy ending set against the background of the end of the human race. The <laughs> uh, last, it's a last man, last woman story uh, without any uh, prospect of, uh, of, of human recovery. And yet it's a, it's, it's, it's a happy ending story of sorts. Anyway, um, well, I, you I, were, I think you were able to come up with one, which is impressive. One of the things you made me think of is that uh, I don't think this happens as much as it used to, but for years I, I subscribed to fantasy and science fiction and for a while even to analog. And there would be Christmas stories appear in the year-end issues of some of those. And right. it seems to me most of those have disappeared. There was a story, I distinctly remember a cover story in FNSF by David R. Bunch called A Little Girl's Christmas in Madaran, which was his horrible sort of, a dystopian mechanized future. I, I remember those stories. Yeah, they were in FNSF. I thought many of them. Yeah, I they? think they were. And yeah. was, yeah. had one collection out, which has been was reissued a couple of years ago by New York Review Books, I think. But anyway, let's no, go on. To, a, go a, go a ahead. Book, I would mention one other thing. Uh, it's a book that I think of in a weird way as having a Christmas feeling to it, although it's not overtly a Christmas story. And that's uh, uh, Susanna Clark's uh, Piranesi which hmm. uh, has a kind of wintry feel to it. Yeah. Uh, it's a story of, you know, gosh, awful things, people doing awful things to one another. 
and yet it has uh, one of the most positive endings. I, I kind of sense that that. Um, you know, after all of the, the depredations that we're capable of, we're also capable of love and, 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 and uh, emotional support to one another and that the world is not, doesn't have to be a, a terrible place, <laughs> kind of a Christmas carol ending in a way that uh, uh, really affected me so deeply. I really, it's hard to find a, a, a serious novel, adult novel uh, about real difficult things that comes mm-hmm. to such a positive conclusion that doesn't feel like it's being pulled out of a hat. Well, it's uh, a, yeah, I had not thought of it in those terms, but now I have a cat attacking me. Excuse <laughs> me. Uh, but, but yeah, it begins as a, as a very, almost a surreal mystery, you know, this mysterious in, interior space, which gradually turns into the story of people doing awful things to other people and then turns into a third story by the end of it. And it's one of the few novels, uh, first of all, it was, it was a novel that no one was expecting from Susanna Clark after I know she spent years trying to do something else with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and did this instead. But I think it's, it's much more satisfying to me than another later version of Jonathan Strange would have been. It's one of the most unusual novels I read all the last couple of years. It's one of the most unusual I maybe ever read. I, I was uh, also surprised it had no, no connection to Jonathan Strange, and that no. was all to the good in, 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 in the end, really. So I, I can't recommend that uh, uh, book more highly. Uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful book. Are there any books that we can look for or stories, or what can we look for from John Kessel next year? Or well, year, uh, in years from now, whatever. Right now, uh, on submission is a story uh, that I wrote with uh, Bruce Sterling. Oh, and, really? Yeah, uh, it's it's called Money in the Bank, and it's I think it's hilarious myself, but I you know I'm not the most objective observer, uh, and it's a takedown of uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and uh, very timely. And, and, it was inc- it's incredibly timely. It's really funny with all this uh, FTX stuff that's happening. Um, there, you might think that every, things that are in our story are in reaction to that, but in fact, we wrote it over the summer. Uh, and and uh, it's as I say on submission. I'm hoping it'll show up sometime next year. Uh, uh, I think it's entertaining, and and it was really fun. I wrote a story. Well, I've known Bruce forever, but yeah. We've never really written a story from scratch before, and uh, we did one story about in the early '90s where he had written a draft of a story, and then I rewrote it, and that ended up being mm-hmm. a collaboration. But this one was written together from page one, and it was interesting game of ping pong. Since uh, he lives in Europe and I live here, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in twenty years, and uh, uh, we were sending the manuscript back and forth, and a little bit of a tug of war since our sensibilities are not are not identical, but. On the other hand, we feel pretty much the same way about the whole crypto culture. And, yeah, and uh, it was. Uh, no, uh, but, but, yeah, back in the '80s, you were sort of lumped in to the anti-Sterling cyberpunk group, the, the the humanist. I don't know if that I don't know if that periodization of that period of science fiction has held up at all. But uh, it, it always struck me as odd to to talk about. Uh, um, Gibson or Sterling or, or, or Shir- John Shirley, as though they weren't humanists to begin with. Um, well, that that actually was my initial reaction to uh, certainly to Gibson's work. I felt like, well, this guy's steeped in humanism, uh, you know. Yeah. But you know, the the things that seem so important, uh, the ideological differences, which certainly Bruce 
was very deeply into, and he, he, he very clearly saw this is different from that. Well, I, I disagreed with him, and we went back and forth about this in the 80s and into the 90s uh, quite vigorously, but in the course of that, we became friends. I, I you know, I, I probably have a bad habit of, uh, I have no principles, <laughs> <laughs> at least when it comes to some things. And so um, I, I it, it is interesting, and we still react to things differently. Uh, our processes, I think, are different, but... but uh, I really like the fact that he tell, he makes me think about things that I wouldn't otherwise think about. And I think I may do the same for him. So mm-hmm. it was fun to write. So It'll that's called a, Money in the Bank. Uh, I'll be looking forward to that because he's been writing, uh, he's been publishing Italian stories, I guess, uh, for the last few years, which I've not read. I've, I know there's a collection of them. And yeah, kind of getting him back in. Uh, a little book, Pirate Utopia, that came out from. It was that, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, that was from uh, Tachyon, I believe. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that and uh, any more. The other thing that's interesting about your novels is that uh, I never know what to expect next. I certainly didn't expect Pride and Prometheus. Well, I I knew that the story was there, but um, I really liked corrupting Dr. Nice to get back to our uh, screwball thing and that sort of thing. So uh, just keep that in the back of your mind. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe I've got another comedy in me. Yeah. Uh, Right now, I don't have a, a, a big project. I had a, a project. I think I spoke with you and Jonathan about this when we spoke in July, uh, uh, a story that has H.G. Wells and Stephen Crane as characters. Uh-huh. Uh, it was going to be a novella set in 1900 or le- the end of 1899, beginning of 1900. And that was con- going to connect up with my novella, uh, the Dark Ride, which is the title story of the collection. And then I was going to write a third novella that would be about uh, uh, Georges Méliès, the, the French filmmaker who did that film in, in 1902, I believe it was, yeah. uh, Trip to the Moon, and which was based on Wells's First Man in the Moon, or at least it drew from some of the uh, right. uh, stories. And, and so all three of these stories would relate to Wells's First Man in the Moon. And they'd be three novellas taking place in three successive years uh, uh, in the early 20th century. But it hasn't gotten done. So we'll see well, whether that happens. <laughs> there was also the, the story, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the title, about H.G. Wells visiting Buffalo, New York, when your dad was actually working in Buffalo. What's yeah, the title? Yeah. Uh, that was uh, Buffalo was the title of the Buffalo story. Was, yeah. That's why it's, uh, which, yeah. because every time I look at the weather report in Buffalo, I think of that story now. Um, but it's, one of the things funny. that because you and I both have Jim Gunn in common as as a kind of mentor that your dad could have met H.G. Wells and I'm sure you know this that Jim Gunn at least saw H.G. Wells and when he was like 10 right. years old Wells was giving a, a lecture in Kansas City and his dad drove him there and I remember talking to Jim about that and he, he, he Jim was way too honest he said look I was a little kid I was standing I wanted to say hi to him and he kind of brushed by me and that was it but yeah. I said, nobody else knows this, Jim. You can say you can say you had this long <laughs> conversation with Wells, and nobody, nobody could correct you. That uh, you know, Herbert put his hand on my my head and said, "Son, you're going to have a l- glorious future as a writer of, <laughs> of speculative fiction." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, we're past our time as 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 I always am with these things, but. Uh, Thanks for being with us again. Our guest today it's has a, been a pleasure to talk with you. I hope you have a, a good holiday season. Uh, my best to Jonathan. Same and uh, um, we'll talk again. Okay. 
because he's been. Maybe I'll see you in Florida. Maybe in Florida. Yeah. 